This is Sam Curry on Security All In. And uh, on this show, we try to get into what makes people tick in security, at what point they went all in on security or security went all in on them. Occasionally, we use a poker motif. We talk about risk management quite a bit. But really, we want to get personal and find out what motivates people and uh, who are the people driving security and maybe what might open security up for others a little bit. And I'm, uh, of course, the Chief Security Officer at Cyber Reason, but we do this in a much broader manner. We try to talk about the industry as a whole and get a little personal about things. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Clay Carter. Clay, welcome to Security All In. Thanks, Sam. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. And you are, if I butcher this, correct me, you are the global security leader, uh, product security leader for Xylem, Inc. Is that right? That's right. So it's interesting, the title's not quite CISO. Is it a product or service-centric side of it? Or are you a more classical chief information security officer or chief security officer with a broader purview? Is it really into the products or is it other things aside from that? It's really on the products. That's my world. So the way I think about my job is three pieces. It's building security into all the things that we provide to customers. Mm-hmm. preparing for incidents and vulnerabilities and be able to respond to those in a quick and comprehensive manner. And then the third piece is really commercial. It's making our customers feel like we're doing a good job at both you know, the first and second parts, building security in and responding to vulnerabilities and incidents. So that's what I live and breathe on the product side. That's a pretty good description. I, I sometimes get asked what CISOs do. And of course, the mix can vary. And I say, you know, you, you have to be operationally excellent. Uh, which sounds like building secure products, but you you also have to you have to be an agent for change to some degree. I think that's true of CTOs as well. And you've also got to you've got to be the voice of security, right? You've you've got to, and I think that kind of maps to what you just described in a way. And do you emphasize more of these? Or is it seasonal, or, or all of them going all the time? It really depends on the conversation. Um, I would say that you know I'm not actively pushing our products with customers, but I'm there to be an advocate and a supporter, both for our commercial teams and for our customers. Um, And so I I really put that as one of the highest priorities really throughout my time. But at the end of the day, to be able to have that conversation with a customer, you have to build security in. You have to be able to demonstrate um, that you're doing those things and that the customer can feel it. And then, you know, when those big things occur, those moments of truth, um, I used to work in the insurance industry. And so I, I learned from that if you're in the life insurance business, there's a moment of truth um, and it's during claims. And so for us, similarly, during a cyber incident of any kind or a major vulnerability and the, the messaging you do to your customers, that's a moment of truth. And they're so going to remember. Yeah, I'm not an insurance guy. I've heard the phrase, but never in that context. Being in the insurance world, what does that moment of truth mean? Or is that, is that common lingo in insurance? It certainly was where I came from at Gemworth Financial. So like the life of Virginia and life of New York kind of properties. And I spent uh, six months working in a call center. I was doing uh, interactive voice response support before I really had gotten into security. It was still on my mind, but I was, I was more broadly working in technology. And so what I learned there in an old shoe factory in Lynchburg, Virginia, is that claims are ultimately where you serve your customers. Um, there's all kinds of things you do in, with underwriting and um, with due diligence and, and certainly to make the business run with investments. Uh, but at the end of the day, how you serve your customers is picking up the phone and answering a call when someone needs to make a claim because someone they love has died. Uh, and that's the moment of truth. You're either there for them or you're not. I like that. I, I spoke to a friend in the insurance business a while ago, and he said, 
we're in the business of paying claims. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm on the outside going, really, you know, and he said, no, no, if we can get more efficient then the ratio of dollars that we spend and the way that we, we spend it can improve. You know, the idea is that the premiums of the many pay for the claims of the few, and we want those people to get help. And so it's cool to hear that. And that's carried over here into what you're doing in security. So you've taken that notion of a moment of truth and you're using it for when security is most needed. You, you talked about being crisis ready as one of your three things. That's did, right. Did you bring that over as a concept? Absolutely. And I'm a believer that there's two types of companies, those that have been breached and those that don't know they've been breached. Um, and so ultimately, you're going to encounter those moments, um, whether it's in your supply chain, whether it's on the enterprise side, whether it's involving an asset that you have produced or managed for a customer. Those times are going to happen, um, even if it's just availability. Uh, and so you're going to have to respond to those things. You have to be ready for that. Um, and you have to be able to you know, retain the trust of your customer. It's uh, easy to lose that trust. And I think those moments of truth are, are real and they happen more often, I think, than we realize. So now... I'm on the outside again in what you do now. Um, Xylem seems to be touching one of the most important things imaginable, which is water. It would strike me that moments of truth around water supply and water use would be huge. I'm probably doing a disservice in describing the company. What is it that you then have to have moments of truth about if, if Xylem's business is about water? Sure, that's a great question. Really, Xylem touches all parts of the water cycle. So from the transport of water for drinking, for other uses, uh, medical uses, for uh, the treatment of water, wastewater treatment, which is a pretty, pretty important function as we look to recycle and reuse water. It, it's really, it is a renewable resource, but it's still, there's still significant scarcity. Uh, being able to perform analytics on that, to be able to get the most value out of every drop of water, making sure every drop counts, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then really another piece of the business that tends to get overlooked Sometimes you want to move water away from where it is because it's really not supposed to be there. And we call that dewatering. That's pretty intuitive. Um, but that has significant meaning when it comes to things like natural disasters. It's a big part of the company is being present in those moments of truth, which really, there's not a financial incentive for us to be there. It's to make sure that people can be made whole. So we've got a team in the Bahamas right now. And we donated, I think, 10 of our medium to large pumps to be able to help, again, move water away from where it's not supposed to be help people get back to their lives. Yeah, and of course, we think of people listening to it right now, but anyone who's listening to this in a little bit, this is right after Hurricane Dorian and then even more storms, tropical storms and hurricanes have blown through the Bahamas and done terrible damage. So that's a mission. Was that a big part of why you went to Xylem? Were you pursuing a mission? Or was that just a you were pursuing a security career and it was a happy circumstance or a good thing, I should say, rather than happy, that there are these moments of truth? What was the motivation for you? Was it mission-related? I think I've, I've always been motivated by helping people. Uh, and that's a, a large part of why I'm in security is I say that there are three reasons why I'm in security and their names are Kate, Cooper, and Nolan. It's my wife and my two kids. Nice. Um, and so, you know, that's why I do what I do. And I found this intersection in my time at GE of, of working on things that affect the world, but also getting to do something I love, which is security. And so the mission of GE resonated so strongly with me. And when I was ready to take on a new opportunity, the mission of Xylem was a decisive factor for me. You know, there's this fantastic program called Watermark um, that Xylem has, and it, it talks about some very important things, like that there are 844 million people in the world that don't have access to clean drinking water. That's astonishing. Yeah, that is a uh, staggering. That's almost a billion. It's just, it's a massive number. An eighth of the world. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, if you think about it. it so it, it's significant and meaningful. And so, you know, that plus the, I mean, another, again, underreported, I think, thing, I think we don't advertise because that's not what we're about. We had a team that was in Thailand during the, the cave rescue. We had engineers that optimized the pumps in Thailand in order to enable the divers to go rescue those kids. And when I learned that, I was like, that's amazing. That's incredible. That's a sense of purpose that goes beyond just making high quality products and doing right by the customer and all those other things. It's this sense of doing the right thing regardless of the financial outcome. I have to ask this. Um, when you do your risk modeling and you think who is potentially the opponent or how might they attack, is it geopolitical? Is it for profit? Are you concerned about hacktivism? Who outside potentially would target that? And does that affect how you get ready? All of the above. Uh, and, and really, it varies based on the sector that we're operating in, you know, whether you're talking about transport or you're talking about treatment or the work we do in the metering space with the electric grid, really last mile distribution and metering. At the end of the day, we have to plan for all of those things. But the way I've tried to articulate it to our management and to our product teams is there's kind of a paranoia barometer that we have to, we have to mm-hmm. calibrate. And it's yeah. just very, a lot of that is based, in my mind, based on impact, followed by likelihood. So the treatment plants are, are really to occupy a pretty top priority for me because of the very obvious impact of not treating the water successfully or over-treating it. That's more true in the chemical space than it is in some of the things we do more of, which is uh, the UV and, and, uh, and non-chemical base. But it, it's pretty, pretty up there. The transport piece matters. Um, I was talking with a product leader just the other day. Their SCADA system that they manage makes sure that water makes it to the fire hydrant or to the tap. And those are pretty important things that people take for granted. They're massive, massive. And, you know, I think in terms of practicality likelihood, it's more the for-profit ransomware space. I mean, that's what I'm seeing in terms of exposure. Certainly, there are lots of highly motivated, highly dedicated actors out there that we worry about as well. Um, just given the kind of the service that we're providing and and that sort of thing. The utilities, I think, are reasonably well-versed in understanding those risks exist. That's why you have DHS and you know, CISA and uh, the EPA as kind of the governing agency to make sure that you know, people are talking and thinking about those things. Water is among the most critical of resources, barring things like heat or coal or air conditioning with under certain weather conditions. It's life or death. And for large, large groups of people, as well as just general health, what happens when the water goes away is a disaster. But that's availability. It sounds like the DNA of your company sort of has an intuitive understanding of security anyway. So, you know, alignment with the business is what I think a lot of your peers have issues with. And I like that you mentioned the probability and the impact, because you've got to walk that line of not being fear mongers, but always being paranoid. Have you got any, any tricks for that? If, if folks are not in water listening, have you seen things that work that might be transferable? How do you not do FUD, but still make them think about these bad scenarios? So they're ready right. in the moment of truth. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I'm anti-FUD in general. I, I don't want to buy into that. I don't want to, to use that to kind of make our case for you know, performing our strategy. At the end of the day, to me, it's about, about the safety culture. That's really a piece that I've tapped into at Xylem and that I continue to tap into. The CEO starts every conversation with a safety briefing. And when I heard that, you know, I, I learned from my time at GE that safety and security are 
interconnected in the OT space in a way that don't separate them, don't try to do that. And so the security culture that we're continuing to mature is really heavily rooted in safety. And so there are already risk assessment practices that exist around making sure the systems are safe. And yeah, you know, we have a habit in business. Yeah, we tend to do this deconstruction and then we do this almost dissection, right? You don't have to kill the animal to take it apart and do a taxonomy of this. You can leave it whole and just acknowledge its qualities, right? That safety and security don't have to be separated. You can do both with a similar program. I love that you always get a safety briefing, though. That That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's been really eye-opening. And, and that means whenever I go talk to an audience, I do a security briefing. And usually it's how to contact security. And I, I've built off of that to kind of align with something people are comfortable and familiar with. And by the way, what's the mission of your company? I'm pretty sure you've probably got a, a way of summing it up. How do you describe what you do? So the, the company tagline is let's solve water. And I've taken that a step further for some of my internal communications to say, let's secure water. I think that resonates with the audiences that we communicate with. I like that. Uh, let's shift gears a minute here. How did you get into security? But let's break it into two parts. The first is, when did you first get the bite? Or when did it, you know, did you sort of sniff it out? And the second is, when did you go all in on security or did it go all in on you? So how did you first get that first moment? Sure. I'd say there were two, two moments that happened probably about six to 12 months apart um, while I was an undergrad. Um, so the first was, uh, I was a, an in-the-dorms computer consultant which was a really cool way to meet everybody, but not a great way to be typecast <laughs> during the, the RPC blaster worm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was move in weekend, um, 2003. And I got to help lots of people reimage their computers because there was a flat university network. And wow. so I got to watch it. Um, people freaking out. Well, I guess it was the beginning of the semester. <laughs> had no important papers lost yet. For our assuming too much. For the folks with new computers, the folks that brought them from home were very unhappy. Um, <laughs> and the, the looks of the parents' faces when I told them there was no way to fix it, because at that time, the only oh. fix was re-image. And then, they were, of course, they were getting quarantined. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it was a trial by fire. And then like a year later, um, when the Stasser worm came out, I was uh, on the phone at the help desk doing the same thing. And uh, I remember that. I remember sequencing <laughs> and they were horrible. Oh. All one right after another, and uh, I was doing tech support. So I, on the front lines. Thank you, RPC and LSAS. Yeah. Tell you what, <laughs> that was huge. That gave me kind of this sense of this is what's possible. And then the second piece was I took a class in my computer engineering program called Defense Against the Dark Arts. This was like right after Harry Potter. And it wasn't a Harry Potter thing. No, that's no, awesome. Yeah. A lot of jokes about that, actually. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we built, you know, tricky jumps and we. We were doing reversing and, you know, it, it just, you know, there's a fantastic book by uh, one of the Symantec guys about, you know, the art of computer science uh, or computer virus research and defense. Uh, mm-hmm. I've still got it on my shelf. And uh, I was like, okay, this is, this I think is what I want to do. That's cool. And did, so you were in, in computer engineering at the time and did right. you just continue in the path or, and bring security in or did, which university did you go to? I went to the University of Virginia, the school and, of engineering. And did they have a security program at the time? No. And I, I, I don't even know if they do at this point. I think they've certainly increased the course load there. But I still saw myself, and I still to a degree see myself as broadly a technologist. I just happened to focus in security. And so you know, I was pursuing a more broad technology career at that point. 
Um, and it took another couple of years before I had the opportunity to really go deep in security and commit. And I never looked back after that. Awesome. So was it Peter Zor's book, by the way? The Art of... It's sitting on my shelf right here. S-Z-O-R. You have it, right? Is it Peter? Yeah. I used to, of course, I was back in the day, I was with McAfee and Aver, and I knew, I knew Peter, but yeah. So that's pretty cool. And when you got out of college, what did you do next? And were you were all in at that point in college, or did that happen after you left? It happened after, um, because I, you know, I, I had a feeling that's what I wanted to do, but there wasn't an obvious path. I actually thought I was going to end up being a, a G-man. I thought I was going to go nice. join the FBI. And it just so happened that I think I missed the cut for that internship program. There was a, uh, a native Mandarin speaker and a, a forensic pathologist med student. And so I was like number three or four on the list. <laughs> oh. And so I went private. I went to the private sector and, you know, broadly technology and insurance and financial services. And, you know, right about the time DLP became popular. And so after a couple of years of doing lots of broad technology, building a really strong practical foundation, I went to, um, to build a DLP program. And you know, from there, it was security architecture, it was product security, and, and then it was Xylem. It just kind of all flowed from building that program in DLP. Very cool. I have to ask this question. Do you have any hobbies, especially ones that might might inform what you do? Is there anything that you really enjoy doing with your non-work time that... It's funny because I find the more you are your true self at work, the better things go. And the more you have things that are outside of work, the better your true self sort of grows, which may sound very touchy-feely, but do you have any hobbies? And, and then maybe are they connected or aren't they connected to what you do at work? I completely agree. I think that you know people can work all the time. They're capable of that, but I, I don't know that necessarily that will get you where you want to be in the long term. Eventually, you have to stop working, and then what are you left with? Right. Um, so, yeah, I definitely believe in, in interests outside of outside of work. And so the biggest thing I do is I, I study martial arts. I've been studying it off and on since college. I have to thank my wife for buying me a Groupon that got me back into it a couple of years nice. ago. And I said, you know what? This time, I'm going to commit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get my black belt. I'm going to do that it's been a life goal and so i'm gonna which uh, which art or arts are you uh, are you practicing yeah i study at a, a taekwondo dojang and mm-hmm. uh, we learn a little bit of aikido as well from a kind of grappling and, and self-defense but primarily taekwondo very cool your wife sounds like she knows you which is she a really does. good thing um, she knows me better than i know myself <laughs> you mentioned, you mentioned her twice how old are your children by the way you mentioned you had two children three and six months Oh my goodness. I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old at the moment, but three and six months is fantastic. So are you getting much time to do the martial arts these days or is it all diapers and uh, security? It's been a very busy six-month period between uh, you know, buying a new house, uh, having our second child, and then switching jobs. But I have carved out a you know, pretty good amount of time to train. One of the bonuses of, of getting you know, moving into our new house is I have a gym in the garage. And so I've got some mats, I've got a heavy bag, and I've been in there every other day, I'd say, for the past two or three weeks. And right now in Virginia, it's 80 plus every day. Oh, so wow. I get kind of the sauna effect, and uh, it's very cleansing. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Cathartic. Hitting something as hard as you can can really feel good sometimes. Yeah, I, I, I can appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, 
there are some days when I think I could really use that myself. I'm doing uh, a much more sort of just calisthenic and weight training rather than martial arts, but I did that for a while, a while back. What qualities do you think you've seen among your peers? So not necessarily you or Asylum, but among your peers in the security industry. What do you think that folks need to have or do or be to succeed at this game if you abstract it? You have to hire a CISO, imagine. Sure. Or maybe somebody in your own role taking off your hat and your company hat. What do you think are important qualities for that? There are three that come to mind for me. And the first, I have to start with technology. That's kind of my my bread and butter. Is You have to be able to, to talk the talk and, and have technical depth. I think the technical depth often differentiates people. So I think that that's the first. I think the second, which is diametrically opposed, is you have to be able to build relationships. I think without relationships, you <laughs> you're shouting into the wind or maybe into an echo chamber. Without those, especially in my role, without the support of the engineering community, what I want to do, what we think we need to do as a company, it goes nowhere. Um, And then the third, I think, would be the business acumen piece. Knowing what you do, knowing what the mission is, why you do it. Being able to talk the language of the business, which really means the business value, the business outcome, and sometimes the dollars Mm. uh, about why those things matter. I think those are the three pieces that really... Three legs of the stool, so to speak. By the way, probably not by coincidence, they map well to the three things you say you do. Almost in order, too, by the way. So uh, that makes some degree of sense. We're approaching the end of, of our interview. I'm going to ask uh, three more questions, I think. So uh, the first one is, do you have any advice for young people or even not so young people that are thinking about getting into security and think, I don't know if I'd do well there. Is it right for me? How would I succeed? And picture that person however you want him, her, they don't really care. Do you have any advice for that person? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I've loved about uh, the things I've had an opportunity to do is I've also had the chance to to be a mentor and that it forces you to look at things differently when you're kind of given that label, whether you are looking for it or not. So a few things. The number one thing I tell everyone that asks me about things career related is it's never too late. It really isn't. Between the options available to people, technology, the times that we live in, it's never too late to go after what you want to do. The second thing would be do something that fires you up. Do something that makes you want to get out of bed every morning because you're going to have to do it. (laughs) So you might as well do something you want to be doing. And then uh, two more things. One, everybody focuses on specialist or generalist. And I think you can be both. I actually think you can learn a lot about a lot. I think that's wide and deep. Yeah. You just have to want it. And then the last piece is busy is a choice. That's the best advice I've gotten recently it's from Debbie Millman on uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast. Busy is a choice. And so are you busy or are you being productive? Oh, I like that. I especially, I, you know, people sometimes say you're so busy or I know your calendar is crazy. And it drives me nuts because busyness seems to be a part of modern life. And it, it's often an excuse for not doing more. I like that way of doing it. I'm going to have to listen to, to that podcast. If you have the podcast, I'll have to send it to me. Yeah, we'll do that sounds fascinating. Okay, so second question is, any book you'd recommend to somebody in security or, or new or anything that you think really captures where things are at right now? Uh, it can be a security book or anything else or, or film, anything in popular media even. So anything that you would say, hey, you want to understand the struggle of what I go through or what it takes to be good at this? Check out blank. What would blank be? I'll give you two. The two that have been most influential to me in just the past 12 months. The first was Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. And that, it helped me recognize how often I make excuses 
And once you do that, and once you commit to stop making excuses and to take ownership of, of outcomes, you recognize when other people are making excuses as well, totally changes your worldview. That's the first one. Highly recommended. Easy read too. I mean, I destroyed that book in, uh, in like a weekend. And the second was The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz for two reasons. One, very, very practical advice about what it takes to be a big part of a company and to build companies. And then two, it's written the way that he talks, and oh. including rap lyrics and profanity, etc. And so highly entertaining, but so relatable. The moments that he describes, it's like, I've, I've been there. And man, uh, this book gives me a perspective on if someone who's been through it and, and how they handle it. Excellent. And my final question is, if we did a poker game at some point among security executives and friends and family, would you be interested in taking part? Absolutely. I'll say that my poker game suffered because I started playing online. And so, you know, my, ah. uh, my wagering got a little bit out of kilter with reality. But, but absolutely, I'd love to play and uh, I think it'd be fun. Excellent. We'll try and find a, a chance to do that at one of our sort of security summer camps or meetups or this conference or that conference or what have you in the future. Clay, thank you so much for joining me. It's been great to talk to you and uh, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely, Sam. Thanks for having me.